You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. I'm going to read our scripture for us this Sunday, which will be from Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you've got turn in your Bibles or follow with me on screen, I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, And from it, we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you, Isaac. Good morning, everyone. My name is um, my name is Chen. I'm one of the elders here at RHC. And um, as I begin, would you just so join me as I kick us off in prayer? Father, we just thank you for this time that we can gather, Lord. We thank you that in our gathering here today, Lord, that we we almost taste a, a or experience a foretaste of heaven, Lord God. That as your people gather to hear your word preached, to be encouraged by your living and your active word, Lord, to be encouraged by the presence of one another, that you would so cast our minds to that which awaits us in eternity, Lord, a time with you. And I so pray that in this time that we have now, Lord, that as we hear you speak to us and lead us and guide us, Lord, won't you so help us just keep our eyes on on the things above, keep our eyes on you, that we may fall more deeply in love with you, that we may delight in you and enjoy you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Happy Chinese New Year, everyone. Uh, Now, let me begin by asking you, for those of us that engaged in the festivities, how was it for you? How has the last few days been for you? Is it something that you have enjoyed? Hands up. All right, good, good, good. Or is it something that you've endured? (laughs) Guys, you can be honest, we're in a safe space here. It's something you've endured. All right, good. All right, now the reason why I ask this is is Chinese New Year, it's known for many things. It is known for the low haze, the ong baos, the the copious amounts of food, the Nowadays, a what, a, a thousand drone dragon, it's known for fireworks, it's known for new clothes. But amidst all these traditions 
and these activities, what is most regarded and what is most revered are what? It's uh, visitations and it's a reunion dinner. A time where families come together, often from afar, to enjoy one another's company. And yet it's this experience, it's the visitations and it's a reunion dinner that can often be the most polarizing in people's experience. For some, it is the time where it is the highlight of the season, something that we can enjoy as we revel and, and just soak up being in the presence of one another. But for others, it can be one of the most dreadful times of the calendar year. Why? Because it can remind us of a sense of, of loss. It can remind us of, of what we lack. It can remind us of the fact that we don't fit up or we don't meet the expectations of our family and our loved one. It can remind us that we are excluded. Now, I don't know where you sit on, on this scale of experiencing Chinese New Year, but I put it to us that the reason why our coming together is often so polarizing is because it speaks to this common human condition. That is, we all desire and long to belong. We all long to belong. Now, hang with me here. As we kind of think and consider about this, I don't want us, regardless of where, again, we're on that scale, even if we feel satisfied in our belonging, or even if we feel that our desires to belong and long cause us too much pain and suffering, I don't want us to dampen this feeling, dampen this desire to belong. If anything, guys, I want us to inflame it. But direct it to the only one who will ever satisfy it. Now, to see how this is the case, we're going to return to the letter of Philippians, uh, a book in the Bible which we've been preaching through since the start of this year. And last week we would have heard that um, Paul exhorted the Philippians, the church, to know and to understand the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And this week, Paul seems to further just hammer this, hope, um, this point home by exhorting us and the Philippian church to press on, to press on to know Jesus, to make Him their life's pursuit, to know Him, to experience Him, to ultimately to be with Him. Why? Because they belong to Christ, and they belong to be with Christ. Now, to see how this is the case, we're going to look through our text, and I'm going to spend a bit of time up front on verse 12, which is arguably uh, can be seen as kind of like our thesis statement for this sermon today or for our text today. And what we see read is that um, Paul draws attention to his pursuit in life, this and it being Christ himself, to know him, to experience him, to be with him. But you may look at this and you go, Hang on a second. Didn't Paul already have Christ? Right? I mean, this is a guy that was in prison as he wrote this, and yet he wrote it with so much joy, not grieving over his situation, but confidently boasting of the riches he already had in Christ. 
This was a guy who, despite, again, his situation, didn't look to himself, but out of his love for Jesus, looked to his church to encourage them, to spur them on to love and good works. This was a guy who didn't waste his moment in prison, but used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to those that didn't know Jesus. Surely, surely of all people, Paul was a guy who had Christ. But what we read and what Paul seems to make clear is that although he had Christ, he didn't yet have him in perfect and full measure. Much like someone who has been engaged to their beloved Paul would be deeply satisfied in, in, in appreciating and dwelling in Christ's love and His grace. And yet with each day passing, he would want to be with Him more and more and more, longing to experience the nature of his relationship in full measure. Now when you think about this, why or what possessed Paul to pursue Christ as such. And I put it to us, and, and borrowing Paul's words earlier in Philippians and, and elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, that Paul longed to be with Jesus because he was compelled by Christ's love. Paul longed to be with Jesus because he knew that Jesus loved him. And I think Paul understood in increasing measure that Jesus not only died for his sins, but that Jesus loved him. Now, now, I draw a distinction between the two because I think sometimes when we think of Jesus having died for our sins, that we can forget that it was out of love that he actually did it. That it was love that compelled Jesus to the cross. That more so than just mere duty or obligation. I mean, Jesus didn't go to the cross begrudgingly. But it was because God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. It was because for the joy set before Him that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. Jesus, my friends, loved Paul. And Paul, in increasing measure, understood this as each day passed. And so what Paul understood, friends, is that God loved him. And he therefore saw each step lived as one that was purchased in love. And he saw each step lived as one step closer to that very source of love. Friends, Paul understood that Jesus loved him. And because of that, Paul pressed on. He pressed on amidst suffering, amidst imprisonment, amidst persecution, amidst pain. Paul pressed on because he knew that Jesus had made him his own. He knew that despite living in squalor, in a prison, with lacking, without anything to call his own, he knew who he belonged to. And he knew where he belonged. Now let me ask us today, where 
and who do we belong to? And how does that therefore affect how we live our lives today? I put it to us, friends, that again, as much as we, it is a common human condition for us to seek and to pursue a sense of belonging, that the only one who can satisfy it is Jesus Christ. And so there's two points that I have for us today. Firstly, and in which we'll spend the bulk of our time on, is to press on to be with Christ. Because secondly, and our second point, is because we belong to Christ. And so coming on to our first point, press on to be with Christ, we, we can look at verse 13, and here Paul reminds the Philippians again that he has not yet made Christ his own that his experience, that his holding, his laying hold of Jesus has not yet been made perfect. But this isn't a resigned admission on, on Paul's part. He doesn't dwell on this admission that he has not yet made Christ his own, but instead it incites action. How does it do so? We, we read of this in, in what Paul then says. He goes, but the one thing I do the one thing I do in light of not yet make, having made Christ my own, the one thing I do is to forget what lies behind and to strain forward to what lies ahead. Now, what Paul is essentially getting at here is to not keep our knowledge of Christ to yesterday but to constantly seek and to pursue Christ in our present moment today and the days to come. But of all things, we've got to ask ourselves, why this point? Of all things, Paul could have encouraged his people to do, could have encouraged the Philippian church and us today to, in, in how to pursue Christ. Why was it this point? to forget what lies behind and to strain forward to lie, what lies ahead. Why was it this point that Paul said, this is the one thing I do, akin to his life's principle? Now, if you kind of consider Paul's previous life, I mean, this guy, again, he was keenly aware of God's grace. We would have heard last week, um, if you were here but you can read in your Bibles, in, in chapter 3, verse 6, we get a portrait or a snapshot into Paul's previous life. And what it says is that he zealously persecuted the church. And in fact, that word persecute is the same as press on. And so what Paul did was he pressed on against Christ. He made it his life's pursuit to run away from Christ or to go against Christ. That was his life's pursuit. And yet as God would have it, what happened to Paul? On the road to Damascus, on the road to persecute the church even further, Paul, or then Saul, would encounter the risen Jesus. Amidst a blinding light and Jesus himself calling out to him, saying, Saul, Saul, or Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? But friends, Paul didn't then there stand condemned as if a prisoner on death row. No, that moment, that encounter would represent the beginning 
of Paul being welcomed into the family of God. No longer foe, but friend. And so Paul, despite this radical conversion, despite this crazy encounter with Jesus, despite the abundant grace extended, Paul would not be satisfied with that which he experienced in Christ. He'd want more of him and more of him and more of him. Paul, in light of this, pressed on. Now, for those of us that are Christian today, we've got to ask ourselves, what does it look like to forget what lies behind and to strain forward to what lies ahead? You know, I, I often hear people say, and I've often said this, that, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, man, I was on fire for Jesus. I was on fire, right? But then, or, 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 but we, we kind of look at those days a bit like we, we, we think to ourselves, actually, but you know what? That was just youthful zeal, right? Those are days past, today's now. That was just youthful zeal. I was, I, I was a bit rambunctious and I was a bit crazy back then. I could go all out for Jesus then, but today it's a different story. But when you think about it, 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 this doesn't actually quite square up with Paul's principles, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And so I've had to ask myself this. At what point did I stop loving Jesus as I did at first? At what point did we stop loving Jesus as we did at first? And how, therefore, have we kept Jesus on the cross of yesterday as opposed to worshiping the risen Christ who is alive and with us today. Friends, Christianity is not mere principles. It is not a set of rules. We do not worship someone who is dead. But we worship someone who is alive. Someone who is with us someone who we can go to, someone who we can seek, someone who is intimately acquainted with the most minute and boring details of our life. Friends, Jesus is a person. He is not a philosophy, and we can go to him as such. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we see Christ as a person? Do we see him as someone we can pray to, someone whose words is actively speaking to us in our life today, someone who leads us and directs us in all that we do in our work, our relationships, our family, (laughs) however we think even about ourselves? Do we worship Jesus or do we think of Jesus as a person in whom we can enjoy, in whom we can love and be loved by? Or, Or do we see Jesus as just a philosophy The Bible, just words on a page, a list of do's and don'ts that are moral standards but are disconnected from our reality? Or do we see God as an inanimate object, someone that is stagnant and stationary and unable to engage with our everyday lives and dealings?
Do we see Christ as a person or a philosophy? Now, to take this one step further, Paul, in, in, in verse 14, then asks us, do we see Christ himself as our prize and as our reward? If that all that awaits us when all is said and done in heaven, all that awaits us in heaven is him. No chocolate fountains, that's one of my things. No chocolate, endless chocolate fountains, no gold-plated streets, no crystal glass, no, no potentially even loved ones. If all that awaits us in heaven is just Jesus Christ, would we be wholly and completely satisfied with just him? Now, I know as radical of a statement as this may be, and as, as difficult as it may be to ascertain or, or even comprehend or understand, Paul seems to add weight to this statement by saying, let those of us who are mature think this way. That is to say, let those of us who are Christian, who are mature, think this way. This way being to pursue Christ as such, to press on to know Him, to, to see Him as our prize and our reward. But we have to understand that this is not Paul trying to boast in his abilities or in his own efforts as if he is just crushing the faith and shaming all those around us. No. What Paul is trying to say here is that he trusts that this is God's work, that God is in the work of cultivating in, this, in us this desire to press on, to know Him, to love Him, to experience Him, to be with Him as such, to see Him as our prize and as our reward. And Paul trusts here that given that this work is a work of God, he trusts that as God is working in Him, compelling Him to pursue Christ as such, God will also work in all other believers, to empower them to see Christ as their pursuit in life, as their prize, and as their reward. And so if we think of that for ourselves today, look, there is a little bit of a mystery here that we may find difficult to comprehend. I, I know I often do at times. But in some sense, we have to make our, ourselves available to press on. But we do so understanding that actually it's still a work of God. And so, pardon the, I was contemplating what analogy to use, but let me have a go with this one. It's akin to like a car, right? Trying to get to a destination. And this car, it needs the right fuel. And in this case, that fuel can't come from ourselves. In order to get to Jesus... We need Christ to fuel us. We can't draw upon the reservoir of self, of self and our own efforts. We have to look to Him. Or said another way, to be with Jesus, we have to look to Jesus. But by looking to Jesus, it will compel us to be with Him even more. So the short of it is this, friends. Even if you don't feel the ability to pursue Christ, the place to start is this. 
Look to Christ. Enjoy him. See that he loves you and that he wants you to be with him. You know, it's kind of like akin, again, to um, an engagement. I know on my wedding day, there were many people in the room, and yet there was only one person who had captivated my heart and my attention. That was Joe, my wife, right? But it wasn't, but that day had a whole series of days which led up to that event. And so the more time I had spent with Joe, the more I longed to be with her and experience her and anticipate being with her in fuller measure. And so akin to Jesus, the more we look to him, the more we'll anticipate and long to be with him. Like someone that is betrothed or engaged to the lover of their souls. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how are we anticipating Christ in our lives today? How are we seeking him as our reward and as our prize? And we can kind of break it down in the various uh, situations or happenings in our life. So, for example, when we're on cloud nine, when we seem to just be killing him and life is good, do we give thanks to God for all that he has done? Do we consider that whilst this is all good, that even if it were all to pass away, I would still rejoice because I know I have Jesus. Or when we're in our suffering and, and or we're amidst suffering and pain, do we take comfort by looking and turning to Jesus and trusting that he is well acquainted with our grief and our pain and therefore a present help in our time of need? Or when we're tempted to, to, to sin or to put God in, in, in second or third place, do we look to Christ and ask Him to show us that He's better? To help us see the surpassing worth of knowing Him and to know despite all the riches in the world that we may have, Christ all the more is our joy and our delight. Or that when we do sin, do we still nonetheless turn to Him, trusting in His love and His grace, trusting that He died for our sins so that we may no longer be slaves but children of God and the Father Most High? Do we trust in His love and do we anticipate His coming today? And so let's ask ourselves, friends, how can we anticipate, how can we look to Christ today? Because, friends, he is with us. And so let's look to him. And in one way, Paul encourages the Philippians to look to Christ is by imitating others. And so here, Paul calls the Philippians to imitate him as he imitates Christ, to imitate him and others as they pursue Christ. Now, I understand in our modern day, there could be a sense of, Cynicism, uh, as we think of imitation, because I'm sure we're all keenly aware, we're all keenly aware of many who, despite their reputation and their influence, have, have turned out to be not, like, not Christ-like examples at all. But as much as we should not disregard their wrongdoing or the heinous uh, 
evil of their actions, we should also be careful not to disregard the fact that God has given us the church and one another as examples to point each other to Jesus Christ. And we just have to know, friends, that, that these examples, these people, they're not perfect, and they'll never will be, at least on this side of eternity. But perfection isn't what is being exemplified. What is being exemplified is the pursuit, the pursuit of the one who is perfect. And so, friends, Paul is asking the Philippians and us today to imitate those who pursue the one who is perfect, to imitate those who pursue Jesus. You know, for myself, I, I had the joyous privilege of um, being able to just imitate someone as such just two, two weeks ago. And he's in this room. I'm not going to name him. I, I know he'll kill me afterwards. Um, but I was so encouraged by this brother. And, and what basically happened was we, we met at a food court and he was just asking me, um, as he does, he's like, hey, bro, like, you know, what do you think of discipleship? How do you disciple? And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, like, this is like, it's, it's this good conversation, right? Um, and it just so happened, like, you know, we're in a tight hawker space, and, and there's, like, two people next to us, and the lady starts, like, listening in on our conversation. I'm facing the lady, and I can kind of hear that she's kind of, like, looking and just checking when to interrupt. And eventually, she just does, Right? And she just goes, hey, guys, I wasn't too sure if I should interrupt, but I was so encouraged by your conversation. So encouraged. And so what my friend does, he, he begins to get to know her. And he hears that while she's Christian, the colleague opposite her, so the one sitting next to me, isn't. And then what this friend does then, he doesn't hold back. He just starts sharing the gospel with her, right? And I'm just like, oh, wow, dude, that's just like... Fire, right? And me normally being like typically shy and awkward when it comes to evangelizing the strangers, I just like sometimes cringe a little bit. I just suddenly become emboldened. I imitate him as he imitates Christ. And I just start sharing the gospel with this lady too. And we end up speaking, I don't know, five, ten minutes or whatever. And the colleague afterwards is saying, thank you. And, and for me, it was just such a crazy moment. It was such a joyous moment for me because I had an imitative, I had an image of like almost like Christ himself, someone just sitting alongside me. And I could imitate him as he imitated Christ. And friends, look around you. Look around you. There are many and numerous examples here in this church, people who imitate and pursue Christ as such. I mean, for myself, I can even recall even more examples. Again, I know another person in this room um, who um, organizes Christianity Explored classes, I think on a Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. Is he here? I don't think he is. Is it Thursday? Thursday lunchtimes? Yes. Thursday lunchtime, Studio 7. You can go speak to him. I can name him. He's JD. He's sitting over there. He organizes um, Christianity Explored classes during um, what would otherwise be his work lunch hour. And he does this so he can reach out to people in the marketplace. And so, friends, if you have people that are interested in, in wanting to know more about Jesus and are within 
the marketplace in a free over a Thursday lunch at 12, 12.30, speak to JD afterwards. And there's other examples. People I know who have been serving at Gladiola's Place, which is a residential refuge for teenage girls. And, and they've been serving here for years, despite their busy schedule. And what they do essentially is they help coordinate food, but also just study Bible, the Bible with, with, with girls that ne- have never heard about Jesus. Or, or another example, and, and again, I was a beneficiary of this yesterday, was, was a family who just invited us to their place for Chinese New Year, knowing that we didn't have any family here, providing us in some sense a home away from home. And friends, there are just countless examples here in this church of people who in their pursuit of Christ are imitating Him, and people therefore we can then look to. And so we can ask ourselves, and know actually that we actually each have a part to play. We have a part in imitating those who pursue Christ, and we also have a part to play by being a Christ-like example for others to imitate. Now, I know for each of us, it may seem overwhelming, but look, we've got to understand this, that in our God-given capacity, we can each represent just an aspect of Jesus. Not the totality, but just an aspect. But when you collectively put all these aspects together, what you see is a collective body of Christ, the church. And so, friends, despite how you might think of yourself, Know this, for those that put their faith in Jesus, we each have a part to play. Yes, to imitate others who pursue Christ, but also to be an example for others to imitate. And so ask yourselves, we can ask ourselves, who can we imitate as they pursue Christ? And how can we be a Christ-like example for others to imitate? Now, as, as many as there are in, in whom, whose footsteps we should follow, um, Paul certainly reminds us that there are many whose footsteps we should not. Why? Because they are enemies of the cross of Christ, and their end is destruction. Now, who are these many? It's a bit hard to tell. They could be Um, Judaizers, or or people who essentially sought to attain spiritual perfection by adhering to the law, and so uh, glorying or or obtaining their righteousness from the food that they ate, making their God their belly, or, or and their circumcision, glorying in their shame. Or they could be Gnostics or antinomianists who actually had no regard for law, didn't care for God or didn't care to honor God with their bodies. And so what they did was they, they, they just ate whatever they wanted and slept with whoever they pleased. Now, despite who these many are, the common thread is this, that they all sought a righteousness that pointed to the self. They all sought a righteousness that disregarded Christ and the righteousness that Christ offers and sought to obtain a righteousness that was determined by themselves. 
And this brings us a, a heavy question. That if we're not following Christ, who are we then following? If we're not seeking to find a righteousness from Christ, where is our righteousness coming from? And where will that therefore lead us? And this, friends, it is a sobering thought. And one myself doesn't say cheaply or condemningly, but, but with much pain and, and sorrow, that there are many today who walk as though as enemies of the cross of Christ and whose end, therefore, is destruction. And if this is you, if you are not yet following Jesus, if you have not yet put your faith and your trust in Him, the good news is, friends, this doesn't have to be. Do not take your being here today as mere coincidence. But take your being here as an invitation, as if, as if from Christ Himself, to put your faith in Him, to trust Him, to know that He is good, to know that He loves you and He wants you to be with Him. Friends, do not hesitate. Do not delay. Put your faith and trust in Him. Acknowledge that as much good as you may do, as righteous as you may seem, Apart from Christ, the end is destruction. Or acknowledge, however, that as much bad as you may have once done, by turning to Jesus, by putting your faith and trust in Him to know that He died for your sins, what awaits is not death. What awaits is not destruction. What awaits is eternity with Him. Friends, there are only two parts. This text makes clear. There's only two parts. We can press on to know Jesus, to, to subjugate or to give Him our desires, to let Him determine and... and and lead and guide us in how we think about our careers, our, our wealth, our health, our sexuality. Or we can press on into the world to be led by what the world thinks is best or what, why, or what we think is best. Be it, what, um, be it our, how, again, how we think about our careers, our wealth, our sexuality. There's only two paths. We can press on into the world and make ourselves enemies of Christ or we can press on to Christ and enjoy our belonging with Him. And so what will you do? And where will this leave you? In our last point, 
as we just briefly just consider the last few verses of our text today, Paul highlights that for those who put their faith in Jesus and trust in Him, trust in, their love, in His love and His goodness, that what awaits them is an eternity of joy. Why? Because they belong to Him and because they're citizens of heaven. And therefore, they can anticipate Christ's coming today. You know, when we think about the context of, of our text, um, we understand that when Paul um, told the Philippian church, at least back then, that they aren't citizens of Rome, that this was no small statement. Um, when we think about it, I'm not too sure if you all recall earlier, but Philippi, it was a Roman military colony, and, and so it largely consisted of ex-military or Roman military personnel, and people who therefore put a lot of weight into their citizenship. A lot of weight. They treasured it. I mean, their empire was killing it, so why not, right? But Paul tells them that they ultimately, they're not citizens of Rome, but citizens of heaven. And so the same applies for us today, that we aren't citizens of Singapore, the passport, which I think now is the world's best, it's the world's best passport, if I'm not mistaken, probably is the world's cleanest country, city, state, has an amazing MRT system. Gosh, there's things you can go on and on about Singapore. We're not ultimately citizens of Singapore. We're not citizens of Australia. Best coffee in the world. <laughs> I go on paper to say that. We're not citizens of the States. We're not citizens of South Africa. We're not, we're not citizens of the world. But we're citizens of heaven. That as much as we can and should enjoy our lives in here, we must reckon with the fact that our sights aren't set on the things of this world, but our sights are set on the attorney that awaits us with Christ and with one another. But we have to be a little bit careful here because in our living here, we're not motivated by a running away from that which is broken. A, a, a fleeing from that which just doesn't work anymore or fleeing from evil. What we're motivated in our lives here on earth is a pursuit or an anticipation of the pursuit to the one who is perfect. And, and why I bring that up is if we're motivated by fleeing from a broken world, it places no importance on our lives here today. We'll just disregard it. Why? It's like there's no point. Why, why try to save a sinking ship? But if we live as a motivated by the one who we are pursuing and the end in whom awaits us, we live in acknowledgement that actually this is the very ordained means by which we journey to him. That we don't disregard our lives here on earth, but we see him as even more important because they are the very means which helps us pursue Christ to make much of him to glory in Him and to love Him. Being a citizen of heaven, friends, does not mean that we don't take our responsibilities here on earth 
to our work, to our families, to our relationships, that we don't ignore them or despise them. But being citizens of heaven means that we actually, we take even greater responsibility because that is who we are. Not children of this world that recognize that all things, uh, recognize there's no eternity to anything, but, but, but children of heaven and who sees these, these work and these duties as one that links to a journey to Christ for all eternity. Now, this may seem overwhelming, and, and the weight of it may seem crushing at times. But in a world that can threaten to overwhelm us and to intimidate, intimidate us as such, what Christ reminds us is that we're not alone. That He is presently with us today. That we can call upon the promises and the hope of tomorrow and make them ours today. And that we can also do this by looking to one another and the promise that we have in the church. I mean, look around you. you. You've come here to gather on a Sunday just to remind each other of this very fact that we aren't citizens of this world, but we're citizens of heaven. Brothers and sisters who, whose blood runs deeper than anything that this world can offer. Because blood has been purchased by God himself. And so in our veins runs the eternity of Christ's blood, connecting us and uniting us with him. And so therefore, we can rejoice in our gathering. We can use these times as to encourage one another of the importance that we have in Jesus, that this very gathering, our time here in worship, is but a foretaste of what is to come, but nonetheless an important foretaste. And so we don't therefore neglect gathering on Sundays. We don't therefore neglect getting to know one another and sharing what God is doing in each other's lives. But we see its importance and we value it and we treasure it. And it's something to enjoy, something that is good. And so, friends, as challenging as the world may be, we can come here and enjoy one another's company and spur one another on to love in the good works, knowing that we're not alone. And now, last point, we can also remind ourselves that as much as we can anticipate our belonging to Christ, there will come a day when Christ returns and He brings us all into glory. Now, now what this looks like, it's hard to comprehend. Um, but our text tells us two things. Firstly, when Christ returns, actually, look, let me take a sidebar for a moment. Sometimes when we think of the gospel, we often think of just like Jesus' death and resurrection, but the gospel also means that Christ is returning and He's coming back for His people. And this is good news on, on, on two fronts. Firstly, again, that He transforms our lowly bodies to be like His. Now, what does this look like exactly? I, I, I don't know. Is it like a full set of hair? Is it white teeth? Is it like no more love handles? It, it very well could be. But I put it to us that there's a good chance that it's so much more, that it's so much more than this. 
that will be transformed in the body, into a body to be like His, that no longer is subject to the pangs of sin and death, but is perfectly enveloped in the love of Christ, free to enjoy creation, perfectly free to enjoy one another, and perfectly free to enjoy God Himself. And the last thing that happens when Christ returns is that he'll subject all things, all things, to himself. And this will be the beginning of the new day for those that follow him, or the end of the days for those that do not. My friends, in closing, all things one day will come to an end. But what happens thereafter depends on who we belong to. Life with Christ or death with the world. Now, if this has somehow spoken to you or challenged you or if if you've got questions, please, friends, feel free to come up to speak to myself or, or, or Tara or even Leanne and, and Isaac, we, we'd gladly speak to you, we'd gladly pray with you. And you can do so after service. If you're not comfortable coming up, go speak to the person who brought you here. Share whatever spoke to you or, or challenged you or convicted you or troubled you, even the sermon. But don't leave this room without some level of response. Speak to someone. And if you came alone and you don't feel like you want to speak to someone, that's okay. But speak to God. Call out to Him and just say, God, can you just show me who you are? Can you just show me who you are and who you say to be? I don't quite get what Chen said or spoke about. I, I, I just want to hear from you. So please show me. Now, I started this sermon um, talking about Chinese New Year and how it's a time where our longing to belong is often triggered and it's often left wanting. But know this, for those of us that press on to Christ, what awaits us is a feast in heaven, a reunion feast one in which is with the family of Christ. Brothers and sisters here in this room, across the entire world, across ages, where we'll sit down with one another, where all our longings to belong will be fully and completely satisfied, no longer subject to sin, but again, perfectly enveloped in the love of Jesus the one and the true love. As we reflect on on this message, I want to leave us um, with a poem written by the 17th century priest and poet, and his name is George Herbert. 
And he wrote this poem, and basically what this poem describes, it's a scene between um, an invited but unsure guest invited to dine with Jesus. Now, now let me read to us this poem. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love sensing me, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A, a, a guess, I answered, w worthy to be here? Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, Ah, my dear, I cannot look at thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply. Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame, my dear then, I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we for those of us that put our faith and our trust in you, Lord, that we no longer stand estranged or from afar, but that you are presently with us and longing us all the more to come to you. How this works exactly, Lord, we can't and often fully comprehend. But Lord, I so pray that you'd help us to enjoy and treasure your love with increasing measure again as each day passes knowing that Every day of our lives lived are ones that have been purchased in love and every day of our lives lived as one step closer to you, Jesus. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, help us see the bounty and the riches that we have in Jesus Christ and help us enjoy him and pursue him and to treasure him in all that we do. And for my friends who have, have not yet put your faith, their faith in Jesus, Lord, God, whether it be through my broken words or, or whether it be through other means, Lord, won't you show them the extent, the magnitude of your love and your grace? And won't you help them see that indeed you are good, that you are good, we thank you for this time that we have, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.